Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a man who's been through a lot of running shoes in the past year and a half. Joe Roberts is the man behind the push for change. He spent 17 months pushing a shopping cart over 9,000 kilometers across Canada to raise awareness about youth homelessness. He also raised over half a million dollars towards the cause and making it a thing of the past, something Joe knows all too well, having spent close to three years of his life chronically homeless, wrestling with addiction in Vancouver's downtown east side. His story is one worth listening to. Here it is. If I've got it right, you walked over 9,100 kilometers pushing a shopping cart over the past two years. Uh, how are your legs feeling after all <laughs> those kilometers? The legs are fine. Uh, we, we did a lot of training in leading up to, uh, to tackling the walking across the country. I was fortunate to have uh, some really great support from organizations like Mind to Muscle and uh, Trainer's Choice and uh, Sports Medicine out of Barrie, Ontario, but also a friend of mine who uh, really helped me prepare and was there in the, the early stages of developing this campaign is a former Olympic athlete and a psychologist, a sports psychologist. So I had some of the best thinking and, uh, and the best training available. In fact, before I, I took on walking across Canada, I did a trial walk between Calgary and Vancouver, which was 1,100 kilometers. And we did that as a, as a pilot. Right. And so, you know, there's, <laughs> there's something that happens when you walk from Calgary to Vancouver. You get a bit of a bounce in your step. Physically, you're, you know, I was really, um, you know, feeling good after that campaign. So tackling uh, Canada wasn't that that big of a challenge. I think the only thing that really kept me awake at night was this time of year, last year, I was in Kingston, Coburg, mm-hmm. Belleville, he- heading towards Toronto, and I was really concerned about the winter because we had picked a fight with Northern Ontario in the wintertime. Mm. So January 1st, I was in Orillia. February 1st, I was in Sault Ste. Marie. And March 17th, I was in Thunder Bay. That means between February 1st and March uh, 17th, I walked over the top of Lake Superior. Yeah. So uh, that was pretty challenging. And those are some steep hills there. I, I can remember those ones very well. I did them myself. Uh, but not walking them. That would have been a much tougher challenge. Uh, I think that there was a lot of different challenges with the winter conditions, the road conditions, the slush the way the tires worked in the snow. And these were all things that we weren't really certain how they would impact, how the body mechanics would work. We certainly over-prepared. I had, uh, you know, up to eight layers of clothes that I could wear. I had different gloves, belt clavas, all kinds of things to protect against the, uh, you know, the minus 40 uh, mm-hmm. wind coming off Lake Superior. <laughs> but it, But it's amazing, you know, having, when I look back, how amazing simple what we did was and how I there was very few items I actually did need every single day and how much of the stuff that we prepared for that we didn't actually need to use did you ever wear all those eight layers at the same time no there was there was a number of different things that we didn't use uh we had different coats and different footwear that we never you know we tried them once and it was like oh yeah that's not gonna work (laughs) Uh, different boots that I thought I need through the winter for, you know, the, the cold, I ended up walking, I would say 
95% of the country in running shoes. Even in winter, uh, we just doubled up on socks and, you know, the shoes would get wet and salty. So, you know, you'd have to wear three different pairs of shoes sometimes, some days, especially if it was snowing. But, um, yeah, there were rain shoes and, and ice boots and all kinds of things that we didn't get to wear. <laughs> and, and, you know, the other thing you don't think about is like you think, wow, wintertime walking, that's going to be cold. But not really. It's exercise. So what I did need to do is protect my face. The wind was biting. Right. So, uh, you know, but I was warm most of the time because, you know, I was moving along at a, you know, at one kilometer every 10 minutes. So I wasn't wasting any time. And the hills, you know, everybody talks about hills. Hills are easy. It's going down them that are tough. Going up hills all day long. Not a problem. I remember uh, Rogers Pass, uh, climbing up the top of Rogers Pass. It's three days of hill. If you start down at the river... Um, which is the, uh, there's two branches to the, uh, it's a big river that flows through British Columbia and it goes down through Castlegar and it goes out and it divides Washington state and Oregon. Um, ah, Columbia. So the Columbia river has two channels around Rogers pass, right? There's the one channel on the one side and then the other channel, once you get over to Revelstoke, but, uh, climbing from, uh, the one channel to the, to the, to the other, like from one end to the other is it's about 300 kilometers and it's, a uh, 150 kilometers up to Rogers Pass and 150 kilometers down to Revelstoke. But that 150 up to the top of Rogers Pass is hill. It's just most of it's just hill. Right. So, so that was three days of hill up, 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 <laughs> up, up. Straight up. Yeah. The going down part, is it because you're trying to stop the momentum of the, of the cart, just wanting to tumble all the way down? Well, it's, uh, it's a different muscle formation or a different thing that you're doing with your body. It's eccentric mm. contraction. So if yeah. you've ever hiked up like a grouse grind or if you've ever, you know, if you've ever done any kind of hiking, uh, you know, I don't know where your listeners are from, but, you know, we've all gone out, uh, out on a trail hike. You get to the top. If it's a good, you know, two, three hour hike, it's coming down. It's a little bit harder on the body because you're mm-hmm. you're locking your quads, you're locking your hammies, you're locking your, uh, you know, your calves. And that's particularly when I would feel knee problems as a 50 year old man. <laughs> I'm, you know, now I'm not as young and as uh, bouncy as I was when I was 20, 25. That's when I would feel it is because all my muscles were locked up as, you know, you'd go down those long hills. So sometimes that's when I would get a really tight IT band or a tight lower back or I could feel it in my knees or ankles. Now, you got a shopping cart. Any kid will tell you this. They they love to jump up on the shopping cart and, <laughs> and ride it for a while. Do you ever fantasize on the on the walk across the country about doing that for a stretch? It's funny. The kids would ask that. That was one of the most <laughs> common questions. We, you know, we had a chance to engage over 453 uh, events throughout the country, and over half of those were schools. And kids would always ask that. The, the thing is, is that even if you could ride it, we wouldn't. The, the shopping cart was that symbol of chronic homelessness, the thing that we're trying to avoid for kids. The whole walk across Canada was to raise dollars and awareness to support a conversation on what we need to do to better support and create prevention models that that catch kids early so they don't end up on the street pushing a shopping cart. In the 1980s, I was one of those guys pushing a shopping cart around the downtown east side. So, you know, that the, the shopping cart was very symbolic. It's something that we're trying to avoid for kids. But Going down those hills, yeah, I, I suppose it'd be tempting to jump on the edge of the cart and go. But the shopping cart wasn't a real shopping cart. It was actually a baby carriage, a uh, chariot baby carriage that we had transformed 
mm-hmm. into a shopping cart. So it really wouldn't have held my weight if I wanted to ride it. And then there's the steering problem. You know? Yeah. There's no way to steer it. So, you know, you might be able to pick up some speed, but <laughs> no telling what tree you'd end up besides. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned the, the significance of the shopping cart and that you were once one of those people pushing a shopping cart uh, in, in Vancouver. What was your experience during that time period? I think, um, you know, a lot of people when they are, they're peering in to try and understand what homelessness is, they, th- what they'll do is they'll pick parts of the visceral experience. Like, yes, it was cold. Yes, it was hungry. I was hungry. Yes, I got wet in the rain. Mm. But the part that's a little bit more difficult to explain to people is the, the sense of hopelessness the sense of community disconnection where you're seeing a world going on around you, but you're not actually part of that world. There's the feeling invisible as you're sitting on the sidewalk and people are kind of walking by, kind of going about their business. Now, my experience with homelessness was directly related to a couple of issues, uh, family conflict and addiction. So at 15, I couldn't get along with my parents, uh, my stepfather and my mom. I left home early. I dropped out of school. I had the precursors of addiction. I ended up getting involved in alcohol, drugs, which led to, you know, chronic addiction. And so for, you know, for a lot of years, I was one of those guys in the downtown east side of Vancouver pushing that, that shopping cart. And, and I would say that the experience of being cold and wet is nothing compared to the experience of being disconnected or hopeless or you feeling like a failure, you're ashamed, you know. If you notice one of the things that, with folks that you might encounter, I know I do, when I meet somebody who's street involved, is is the eye contact. There's a deep sense of shame. Hmm. And, and in that, there's actually some hope. Because in that, there's a human being who's saying to themselves through that eye contact or lack thereof that I am a human being and I'm not at my best place right now. Mm-hmm. You know? And one of the things that people ask me all the time is, you know, hey, Joe, I see these, these folks, they're panhandling. They're like, where you are? Do I give them a dollar? Do I give them a sandwich? You know, I'm, I'm worried that they might use the money on alcohol and drugs. You know, that one of the greatest things you can do, whether you give them a dollar or give them a sandwich or not, the greatest gift that you can give somebody who's experiencing that is to see them. Yeah. To engage with them. Right. You know, they have a story. It's like all of us when we were growing up at some point, or at least most of us had that defining moment where our lives could have gone sideways. But because we had good people in our lives, we were afforded the ability to make a mistake or two and it didn't create dire consequences in our lives. But the truth is, is the not all childhood and uh, not all families are created equal. And so young people who struggle, who don't have those good peer mentors and support systems who don't have, you know, that solid, um, they fall through the cracks and unfortunately they become, you know, the casualties in a, in a country that shouldn't have casualties like that. You know? You're right. Uh, there, there is often a tendency, uh, when you, you're seeing somebody on the street and it looks like they need help, uh, maybe they've got a cup in front of them or their, their hand is out asking for change. People look away, you know, you want to look anywhere but at that person. And I think part of that is, is a, a guilt thing for people who are passing by feeling like, why am I in the situation I am? And, and this person is in such a polar opposite situation. Uh, but that, that discomfort that we experience, um, what, in your experience, when you were on the other side of that, 
what were your social interactions like um, during that period? Were you, you know, who were the people that you were getting that social gratification from of, of having a human, human experience and humans recognizing each other's humanity? Well, I want to say that my experience wasn't all negative. I actually saw some, I met some really beautiful people when I was on the street. You know, some people who just, you know, they would come up and give you a hug and they would give you some money or they'd see you, they'd stop and have a conversation. I also experienced the polar opposite of people who would yell at me and berate me and uh, and judge me. What I understand today and, and you know, you, we just kind of glide up into that altruism is that we need to get to a place where we better understand what the issues are and then we won't be judging a person who's sitting on a piece of cardboard and and, uh, and going through that experience. You know, we live in a society right now where if you went into a hospital with, you know, diabetes or heart condition or something of that nature, the, the doctor wouldn't say to you, well, you've, you know, you've made these poor health and, and eating choices, so we're not going to help you. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds, that sounds ridiculous, right? And yet we live in a society right now where it was, if someone is on the street experiencing that, they can tend to be judged instead of treated. And we need to get to a place where we treat and not judge it. So your question was, what was that experience? Well, I had friends. I had, I, and I had, I had a lot of community supports. You know, people give me an attaboy, Martin, and say, you know, Joel, you done, you done such a great job. You, know, you pull yourself up. The truth is, I'm a community investment gone correct. I'm here today because of organizations like the Salvation Army, because of organizations like 360 Kids, organizations like Raising the Roof, people who were there to help love and support me when I was in my most vulnerable place. And they loved me back to a place where I could, you know, find my possibility. I'm here today because of an OPP police officer named Scott McLeod. I'm here today because my mom wouldn't quit on me. So even in, in those moments of despair, there were always, you know, one or two doorways open. And then there were the people that I associated with. You know, there's a great line in an old Led Zeppelin song that says people meet when they're down and out. And there's that camaraderie that we would share in our own self-imposed misery. right? <laughs> and uh, and there is a connection. You go to the downtown east side and it's very much a community. It's got its own feel and vibrancy. And yeah, there's a lot of really ugly things there, but there are also some very beautiful things. How long did that period last for you when you were experiencing homelessness? Well, and that, that's a good question and, uh, and a good opportunity to sort of explain what is homelessness and uh, especially for youth. I first began to experience early stages of homelessness when I was 15. Uh, I think the answer to, you, to the question you've asked is how long was I actually on the downtown east side chronically homeless? That was a period of uh, around three years. So really not a lot of, uh, of time when you compare. I've met you know folks who are living on sidewalks for 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So my, my time down there wasn't that great. But homelessness is, 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 is not a, a one thing. It's a process. Right. Of, uh, de- it's uh, degenerative. Well, it can, it can be arrested. That, that's the stuff that we're all, always interested in, in uh, you know, investing in, in support systems so that someone doesn't end up chronically homeless. Because when they're chronically homeless, it's, it's very expensive in their life and in, in the lives of Canadian taxpayers. So, but, uh, you know, when I was 15, I, you know, left home. And so I was couch surfing. And, you know, the Away Home Canada has defined youth homelessness as uh, any young person between the ages of 14 and 24 that lives independently of their parents and or caregivers, but doesn't have the means or ability to provide safe, stable and consistent housing. 
Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of young people in this country that fit that, but wouldn't consider themselves homeless. They say, well, I've got a couch to live on or, you know, I can stay at my aunt's or my uncle's. But wait a minute, your aunt's or your uncle's may not be the best place for you to be, especially if there's alcohol, drugs, or you're staying at a boyfriend's place and, or maybe some other place and there's predation and, you know, you're exposed to other things. You know, these are things that, you know, that concern us when we're looking at that, those prevention models to get, you know, if that young person can't be at home or is had, having trouble staying in school, that we get those services around them so they don't end up on a piece of cardboard sitting in front of a liquor store. Because by the time we see that, by the time you see a guy like me pushing a shopping cart, a lot of bells have been rung in that life. There's been a lot of trauma. There's a lot of stuff that's gone on. That's not to say that we don't continue to invest when people are in crisis. But the better question is, what can we do when that person's in that invisible homeless state, when they're couch surfing or you know, beginning to have trouble? Right, right. Because there's often, the way I understand it anyways, there's two two different sort of two different sides to homelessness. There's the, there's the person that, you know, is, is out of the home, but they're, as you said, they're, they're crashing on somebody's couch and they might be going from, from place to place as people say, okay, I, I can't host you anymore. You got to go somewhere else. And then there's the chronic homelessness that you see where, where people no longer have that place to go and, and then they're really on the streets. Uh, what was in your period of chronic homelessness, where did you call home during that period? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, sometimes I could stay in a, somebody's hotel room on their floor for a couple of days. Um, sometimes it'd be in a vacant building. Sometimes it was in the shelter systems. But, you know, oftentimes the shelter systems, you know, it's a it's a they're short periods of time. And when I was in active addiction, you know, when I was really chasing the the, the, the drugs, housing is a secondary concern. Mm-hmm. You know, it's way to, it's down the list. So, you know, you'd be out chasing and, and, you know, be really absorbed in that life at the end of the day when you, you know, at the end of the day or several days when sleep would just inevitably have to happen, it would be under a bridge, you know, um, it'd be tucked away in some alcove or something somewhere, just a, you know, hole in the wall. There was a couple of, you know, places that I haunted in, you know, in the downtown east side. And one of them was the Georgia Street Viaduct, which... If you're in Vancouver, you know this. It goes uh, beside, in between the two stadiums, uh, BC Place Stadium and the hockey rink. Mm-hmm. And underneath that uh, viaduct, it's this big, uh, like it's this big three-lane or four-lane uh, viaduct that takes you over to uh, Main Street in the downtown east side. But uh, there was a heated pipe that ran underneath there. It was this massive heated pipe, and, uh, and so it was a favorite spot for a lot of folks because you could get your uh, bedroll and, and cardboard up if you got a spot close to the pipe and it was actually not only dry, but it was warm, it was dirty, but you know, if you can get warm and dry, uh, yeah, that's a rare thing. That's why you see folks on the vents, you know, in downtown Toronto, cause it's the, the heat's coming up from the subway system. So mm-hmm. what, what were the drugs for you at the time? What, what, uh, what was your introduction into that? And, and what was it, uh, that you were chasing? I started doing drugs when I was nine, and again, it had a lot to do with early childhood trauma, uh, abuse from a stepfather, and um, so, yeah, I, I started using drugs when I was nine, it was actually glue, I started sniffing glue, and, you know, it was, uh, it was this experience that when I went home, the chaos that was my home life was uh, bearable, so, mm-hmm. you know, I felt in that bubble of protection that I could go on, so... 
that's how it started. And, it, you know, I graduated to alcohol and, and marijuana and uh, LSD and, and then eventually uh, cocaine, crack cocaine and heroin. So the end of my days in, in Vancouver was was heroin was my drug of choice. And I think uh, for me, it was it was that it was a, a drug that shut me down emotionally. And uh, the, the problem is, it's, it's, you know, it's highly addictive and it's, you know, it has an increasing tolerance and it's not a it's not a cheap thing. And so your life became my life became consumed with, you know, it was like a groundhog day. Every day you woke mm-hmm. up and, you know, you're, you're beginning to descend into withdrawal. And the only way I can describe withdrawal to people who don't really understand opiate addiction is withdrawal is like the worst flu you've ever had times 100. You wake up in the sweats and you can't sit still and you get this nagging feeling and this high level of anxiety. And you know that $10 will make all that go away. And so you find yourself in this vicious cycle of addiction and uh, you feel like crap. And uh, you feel like crap because you're in that vicious cycle. You want to stop, but you don't know how. And that's why I say, you know, it's like it's, it's nothing that I did. I know dozens of friends of mine who who passed away or ended up in you know in real serious uh, situations in their life that they had all the same possibility as I did I just happened to uh you know I've had the the right people at the right time when I finally made a decision to stop they were there to pave the way of, uh, for my recovery and my transformation you mentioned that OPP officer earlier, mm-hmm. Scott McLeod. What role did he play in your life? Uh, how did he get involved in your life? Well, we'll go back a little bit first, how I got off the streets of Vancouver. It was, um, I was desperate. It was before Christmas, and I ended up selling the boots that I was wearing off my feet. So I was in that, that desperate state of withdrawal, and I just wanted the pain to go away. And I ended up going into a bar, and I and I traded my boots for, uh, for a $10 paper of heroin and and I remember leaving the bar and it was raining, cold, wet rain, and I had no shoes, no home. And I was so desperate. And I was, you know, I reached out that day and I called my mom and asked her for help. And she flew out to Vancouver and she helped me and and brought me home. But as kind as my mom was, she was no mental health worker. She was no addictions counselor. Mm-hmm. And so I continued to struggle because, you know, I was I was in full-blown addiction. And one of my patterns in addiction was uh, I would use or get high and then I'd become suicidal. So one night, you know, I was away from the hard drugs, but I'd gotten my handful. I got my hands on pills and, and alcohol and I'd gotten uh, quite messed up. And I ended up, my mom walked in the bedroom and I was sitting on the edge of my bed with a, a, a nine millimeter pistol trying to find the courage to end my life. Mom ran out of the room. She called the OPP. And dispatched that night was a gentleman named Scott McLeod. Now, you know, quite often, Martin, will turn on Twitter or TV and we'll see examples of what happens when uh, police get it wrong. Right. And someone loses their life. One of those tragic mental health calls where justifiably a police officer uses force only to find out later that what was really in front of them is somebody struggling with some mental health stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Scotty seemed to have this very gentle nature when he came to my house and it was a serious situation and knowing what I understand today, it really could have gone either way. But Scotty saw a human being who was in crisis, not a man who was a threat. He saw a kid in crisis and he diffused that very dangerous situation and 
because of that, I got a ride to a mental health clinic. Or the, you know, I went to the hospital to deal with the mental health folks instead of possibly it ending right there. As a result of that, I ended up going into a detox and then a full residential treatment program. I got introduced to recovery. I went back to college and my life started to take an upswing. I think that um, the reason why uh, the story has uh, such a great legacy is that a year sober, I wrote Scott a letter and let him know his impact. You know, a lot of police officers and uh, people in, in justice, they go about doing their lives, you know, their, their things every day and they don't realize the impact they have on other people. Mm-hmm. I sit in the rooms of recovery and I hear the stories of how, you know, somebody's bottom was going to jail or, you know, something terrible happened where they had to face some consequences. But very few people actually then take take the pen to paper and say, hey, thanks for interrupting my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that. I, I said, thanks. You know, that really helped me. And then I, you know, I wrote him a letter when I had, uh, you know, uh, I graduated college and I wrote him a letter when, when my daughter was born. And Scott's one of my best friends in the world today. And uh, we share our story with police leaders all over uh, the continent, letting folks know that an average call can turn into something that will define your career. Uh, when I finished the walk, uh, I looked over my shoulder and Scott was right behind me. Wow. Yeah, we had Christmas dinner together. So, yeah, he, it's just it's funny because from if you talk to Scott, he'll say, oh, I didn't do anything special. I just went and did my job. But the cool thing about the push for change and its heavy, its involvement with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the uh, Ontario Provincial Police is that we got a chance to not only impact the communities they serve, but also to impact their culture. And policing today is, a, is in a different place. They want to do better at mental health and dealing with homelessness. And uh, the push for change has had an impact, I know, on the organization uh, with the OPP. I know with the, with, the, uh, with the Mounties. And we're looking forward to continue to work with those agencies because homelessness isn't something that homeless shelters can solve. No. For too long in this country, we have put the weight of solving this problem on people's shoulders whose responsibility is to deal with the crisis, not to stop it. You know what I mean? And so if we're going to prevent, reduce, and end homelessness, youth homelessness or adult, we need to cast the net further to include mental health, to include the government, municipal, provincial, and federal, to include educators, to include law enforcement, to include families. Because if we don't do that, the sector can't solve this problem. If it, if it could have, it would have. Right. It's not for lack of passion. It's just that this is a bigger issue than something that Covenant House and the Salvation Army can solve. It's, it's the whole, it takes a village, right? It does. You know, it takes more than just one. It does. And, and, the, and the thing behind the push for change was we wanted to create this national. I mean, the walk across Canada was sort of a, uh, you know, that's cool. It's been done. But really what was the asset of walking across Canada is that we got to mobilize and create these high levels of collaborative conversations from one end of the country to the other. And when we rolled into Vancouver, on Friday, September 29th, we had done such a great job that, you know, we had you know hundreds of the right people to support us when we finished that. And when we were done, the United Association of Canada made a million dollar commitment for us to continue to do the work that we're doing in the school system across the country. So it's a testament to to the success of the, the campaign. That's fantastic. Uh, Joe, how old were you on that day when you first when Scott had to first respond to, to, to intervene in, in you taking your life? Um, I was uh, 24. And 
how many years have passed? <laughs> Not a, that's, a, that's a roundabout way of asking how old you are, I guess. No, how many I'm, years 50. You... I'm 50 now, so it's about 26 years ago. So 26 years that uh, that you and Scott have stayed in touch mm-hmm. and uh, and managed to keep that dialogue going and, and what a change it's brought. I want to talk about the, the walk and, and the trek that you did. You started May 1st in St. John's. What was going through your head at the starting point? You're setting off a whole country in front of you, uh, a whole lot of walking to go. Yeah, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but I was scared. <laughs> I was scared to death. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just just to to contextualize this for your listeners, that was May first, twenty sixteen. Right. 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 So the scheduled nine thousand kilometer walk took us seventeen months. Seventeen months of me and and my wife Marie and Bobby. Uh, McGee, our driver, of slowly 24 kilometers every single day, walking across this country, engaging with schools and municipal leaders. And when we started, I remember being in Newfoundland in May, which, you know, if you're from Newfoundland, great. But if you're planning on visiting, don't visit in May. (laughs) (laughs) You might want to wait till July or, or August because... It was uh, it's a foreboding place. The weather can uh, can really turn on you. But I can remember the first couple of days. Actually, you know what? Three and a half days into it, my knee flared up, and I had to go see a physiotherapist in uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland, and I was scared to death. I had nine thousand kilometers in a Canadian winter in front of me. I was forty nine years old. I'm a non athlete. How the heck was I going to walk? 450 half marathons mm-hmm. back to back and i tell you something that plays on you that plays in your head and it's interesting you know when you watch the playoffs you watch whether it's football or hockey or whatever wherever your sport is the media will always ask the players like what do you think of a game seven and they're like i'm not thinking of game seven i'm thinking about game four right now because that's the game in front of us and that's kind of how you had to approach walking across the country because if you got too far ahead of yourself you just mentally break down because it's like there were days when you're I was so tired and uh, dealing with wet or dealing with fatigue, emotionally drained. There was three of us that lived in an RV for the mm-hmm. summer and then hotels in the winter and then RV in the summer. And 17 months, that's a long time. We're not talking about being on the road for a month or two months. We're talking about being on the road not having a place to hang our hat for a year and a half. So it was it was exhausting. And uh, the work that the team put in, the work that Bobby put in, the work that Marie, my wife, she's the unsung hero of the campaign. The reason we got a chance to meet with the prime minister and have a conversation, the reason, you know, we were able to raise uh, $560,000, the 453 events engaging the 10,000 members and, and civilians of the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, you know, all of these visits we had to Parliament and to Queen's Park and to uh, I mean, all of the crazy stuff that happened. It was a testament to how, how hard Marie worked on the campaign. That 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 number for me, 453, is, is incredible uh, because, I mean, I so context for you, I, I did a bike ride summer of 2016. I'm, I'm actually surprised we didn't cross paths at some point. Uh, so I went from Vancouver to St. John's. And, um, you know, and I did a handful of, of events uh, across the way. I was, I was talking about mental health at the time. 
but it's a it's a big ask when you're when you're spending half of your day just getting from point A to point B, and then you have to summon the energy to go out and and greet a you know a room full of people that keep on talking. Uh, how do you have the energy to do four hundred plus of those over the course <laughs> of that time? Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that I think it's about your why. You know, right. you, you cycled across the country. It's not about summon. It's not about discipline. It's about obsession. <laughs> it's about tapping into your purpose, your reason for being. Mark Twain said there are two days in a man's life. You know, the day he's born and the day he finds out why he was born. Hmm. And for me, the push for change, I live to inspire possibility. And some days I'd walk 24 kilometers in minus 40 and then go do three schools and two media interviews and wake up the next morning at 4:30 and do it again and do it again and do it again and the OPP I mean these guys these guys and gals were great love them to pieces but boy did they keep us busy you know <laughs> we were thinking once we got north of uh, Aurelia we would be fine because there's nothing up there uh-uh it was the smaller communities that came out like the whole community you'd have the mayor you have the police chief the fire chief the entire school you have the mental health folks you, like I remember places like Wawa and Dryden and Kenora, Sault Ste. Marie and Blind River and Echo Bay and Espanola, like all these places. But because we had such a, a great group of folks supporting us, we did events like, you know, six kids in a local elementary school in Ignace to go into a wee day in Toronto at the Air Canada Centre. So I don't call it that anymore, but whatever, that big building where they play <laughs> hockey, right? Right, 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 yeah. yeah. You said something there that struck me, uh, that you live to inspire possibility. It's something you've talked about before, the, the possibility mindset. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, we're going to go down a wormhole here, or possibly could. Like, we are not what we think we are. We, we live our lives in this self-imposed cage of these avatars that we call self but we're actually really not that we are we're we are nothing but a ball of energy and infinite possibility so let's kind of get away from that because we could kind of we could wander off on that thought possibility mindset is this notion that we get stuck in our thinking we get stuck to think, saying we can do this and we can't do that we look at the world we look at a person on the street and say huh, that guy is screwed he's never going anywhere but inside that human being is possibility. At any given moment, that life can change and transform. We've all gone through transformation. Right? Now, the core of any great thinking, any great thought leader, any person who's inspired us, what inspires us is that the fact that they believed in something and they, they moved towards it. Whether they accomplished it or not, we still admired that. You take a look at John Lennon or JFK or Martin Luther King or Terry Fox, you know, my, my hero. These are individuals that stood for something and said, we can create this change. And then relentlessly threw their lives at it at a possibility. You see, that's where, where our lives are best lived when we're outside of our comfort zone. If we listen to our thinking, you know, we're designed to stay alive, not to peak perform. Our brains are designed to keep us alive. That's why we, we run into so much stuff. That's why we don't embrace change. Because what do you need to embrace change for to survive? You don't. So if you're going to do anything big in your life, you need to tap into purpose. 
you need to tap into to that higher realm. And once you do that, then you find that next gear. You see, all things are about the actions that you take. But if you do not have the possibility mindset, you won't take any actions. That's why kids who are compromised don't find success in life. It's not that they don't have success in them. It's that they don't take the actions. Hmm. So we get stuck and we settle. It's the greatest tragedy of life isn't that it ends too soon. It's that we wait too long to begin it. We don't find out until we're in our 40s and 50s that, wow, holy crap, if I had only known this when I was 20 and actually put one foot in front of the other. You know, Ma- Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, he talks about 10,000 hours of mastery. And so the problem is, is getting those 10,000 hours of mastery into something requires the base of possibility mindset, something that Gladwell didn't talk about. It's what drove all these different outliers into being successful is the relentless action. We live in an effort-based world. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be gifted. You don't have to come from a good home. All you have to do is believe strongly in something and throw absolutely everything you have at it and you will meet with success beyond anything you could ever imagine. The problem is you're going to predictably run into a whole bunch of situational and emotional roadblocks. And if you don't have a possibility mindset as a context, that stuff will get you stuck. What were those roadblocks for you as you were going across the country when, uh, when you needed to summon that mindset and, and remind yourself of, uh, of why you're doing what you're doing? Well, we faced a lot of, uh, we faced a lot of uh, challenges before we even took the first step. We needed to get funding. One of the unique things about our campaign is that we were fully funded, meaning we had all the money from sponsors before we left St. John's, Newfoundland on May 1st, 20. Uh, 20, uh, 2017, 2016, 2016, 2016. Yeah. 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 And, um, and so that meant we, we needed to go out and fundraise. So the, here's the conversation. Hey, you want to support a person? Nobody knows to walk across the country, pushing a shopping cart. They're like, what? <laughs> but we believed, and I, and I'd say Marie believed more than I did that we would, we would find all of that money. What we didn't want to do is to have people giving us donations that, that, you know, we said well, we, we want to help homeless youth and then take those donations to operate with. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like I don't like that when when I, you know, when I see that in a charity, I don't like it. So and I, I know a lot of people don't like it. So so that was a roadblock uh, on the campaign. I think some of the roadblocks that we faced were physical and emotional exhaustion and just not having enough rest. But that's when you break it down into just get through today. Tomorrow will be a better day. And all you have to do is go out, put your shoes on, and all you have to do is walk 24K. Just get that done. And, you know, when you go out, isn't it amazing? You go out and you just, you do it when it's hard. You know, like, you know, when you go to the gym and you don't feel like it or you, you know, you do that task that you've been procrastinating and then you get the other side and it's like, yeah, it's not so bad. Hmm. And, uh, you know, the miles start to, to pile up. I don't think it's even sunk how much of an epic thing we've we've just done you know like you rode across the country when you got to the end you kind of look back and went oh that happened fast (laughs) sure does doesn't it yeah 17 months and it's like it's over it was over you know a week and a half ago and it's like but when we were in st john's and we were we were looking at the country it seemed like this was going to be would go on forever but yeah one of the things i think that makes up any any journey like the one that you did is the people that you meet along the way, the stories that you get to hear, the people that welcome you into their communities, into their homes, whether it's a meal shared or, uh, you know, a roof over your head for the night or just a conversation that you have. What are the ones that 
you keep thinking back to in the days uh, after this walk is all done? Um, you know, I've said this in a few different interviews. As we walked across and, and celebrated Canada's 150th anniversary as a country, I think that Canada is so much more than sunsets and pretty mountains and, and pretty rivers and, and uh, ocean coastline. It's it's the people that make this country great. And when they get across what you're doing, they'll always support you. A great challenge in doing this kind of work is being relevant, getting noticed. But we worked really hard. We knew that going into it, that it's the hardest part isn't walking across the country. The hardest part is is getting people to care about your cause and engaging. But those experiences, oh my goodness, where do you start? There's just... There was so many of them, every little community, you know, we loved Atlantic Canada, just a, a real, a real gem, you know, places like Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, coming into Fredericton, Ottawa was, you know, extraordinary meeting that the prime minister, the kids I think are, are what, what really made it uh, huge for me, all the schools. And, and getting the kids, the kids would lie in the sides of the road and then come and walk with us. And again, thanks to the OVP, we, we could walk with those kids for a kilometer or two, and then we would go to school, and, and uh, then we would tell our story. And that was uh, you know pretty incredible. And you see kids moved, right? You see the light going on for them. That's pretty special. Take me to that moment, pushing the shopping cart through the streets of Vancouver, people cheering you on, those same streets where you once lived, and, and having all of that coming full circle for you. Uh, what was going through your head just those few short weeks ago? Um, I think there was an elation. There was some emotion. Um, but one of the things that I didn't expect is, is just, uh, we're so tough. We were so tired and so exhausted by the time we got to September 29th that, uh, the day just kind of flew by, but it was perfect. I mean, coming into the downtown East side and we had people walking with us from all across the country. Like we had people from, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure every province. Hmm. Uh, we had our UA members. We had uh, we had the commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police, the deputy commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police. We had uh, Mountie uh, Red Surge. Um, yeah, we had. It was so cool. And we had, you know, we came down through the downtown east side, and we, there was a school that met us, and they cheered us on. And, and then we got to the cenotaph at uh, Victory Square, and we had a couple hundred folks. And then we when we got piped in. Uh, pipe and drum outfit uh, brought us into the the library and uh, yeah and then we had our last event it was pretty cool yeah I want to ask you about two things of of perspective Uh, first uh, what what perspective uh, your time experiencing homelessness uh, gave you as well as the perspective of doing this walk and uh, the experience of of going across the country and meeting these people sharing stories and conversations how have those two experiences shaped how you look at the world well i think that um homelessness and that experience i had in my life was uh it's the greatest asset i have lived experience is uh something that i can continue to use as a platform to educate and inspire whether it's the prime minister whether it's policymakers or mayors whether it's police officials or whether it's elementary school students it is the greatest asset that lived experience and I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. As for walking across the country, I got a new love for Canada. We picked out our next 10 vacations. Yeah, I don't know why 
<clears throat> well, I used to, you know, want to, uh, you know, go, go to exotic places and experience different vacations. But, uh, you know, Canada is, is my home of birth. And whether you're from here or you call this place home, it's an extraordinary place. And if you, you're listening from abroad, come and visit, you know, the, the greatest place that I've ever known, the true north, strong and free. It's, it's, it's not about the natural beauty. It's, about, it's just about how pure Canada is to me. And haven't experienced it in, in such a, uh, a unique and intimate way. I've just re-fallen in love with the country of my birth. Joe, thank you so much. Is there anything I haven't asked you you still want to share? No, just um, this is the end of the walk, but it's not the end of the work. Winston Churchill said, uh, this isn't the end or the beginning of the end. This marks the end of the beginning. And so we've walked across the country and we'll continue to advocate for the issues that are near and dear to our heart, which is making sure that every young Canadian gets to where they're going in life by uh, supporting prevention models, housing first models, and supporting emergency services. So uh, our next uh, phase is to go into the school systems across this country and to continue to do that work, uh, to inspire young people, to educate young people, and to empower young people to take up the torch. Not everybody can walk across Canada, but every single one of us in our own way can push for change. So think nationally, act locally, and continue to follow us on social media, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and see what, uh, what's coming next for the Push for Change. Joe, thanks for doing what you're doing. Thanks, Appreciate thanks. it. Yeah, cheers. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you want to support the Push for Change or learn more about Joe, head over to thepushforchange.com. There is lots worth checking out there. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor and hit subscribe, rate it, review it, wherever you get your podcasts from. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Player.fm, and slowly but surely YouTube as well. It's a good number on there already. Theme music for the story untold is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Next week on the show, get to know an architect from Hamilton that's part of a group bringing tiny laneway houses to the city. Once again, I'm Martin Baum, and this was a story untold. See you next time.